0: This is Building Optimal, a podcast to help builders and remodelers take your construction business to the next level. Welcome to episode 24. This is a conversation with Fernando Pajes Ruiz. Fernando is a very innovative builder with a long, successful run, as you all will see. He's also the author of several books, including the popular Building an Affordable House. Now Fernando was introduced to me by one of our recent guests, David Gerstel. This has to be one of my favorite interviews I've done for several reasons. For one, you listen to Fernando and you quickly realize just how smart this guy is, how he reasons from first principles to find better, more creative solutions to problems, specifically with ways to cut construction costs. But also Fernando has this fascinating story and evolution throughout his career. He's currently building homes on the coast of Ecuador in a manner that equates to farm to table, but in the construction sense. This is a long interview, I encourage you all to listen to the whole thing, but if you have to pick a few areas, be sure to check out our show notes on the website to find exactly what parts interest you most and might apply most to you. And finally, before we begin, we have a lot of great stuff coming up this year, so stay tuned, but also please send us your feedback and comments so we can be tailoring our efforts to the pain points you guys are dealing with in your business. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Well, let's jump into this. I I think this can go a lot of different directions, and and I want to be respectful of your time, so I'll, I'll try to try to hone it down as much as I can. But let's first uh, talk a little bit about your background, and and uh, you've got these multifacets to you and your business. You're a an author, you're a builder yourself. I mean, how did you come up in this? What's your what's your background?
1: Well, I never intended to be a builder. You know, I, in fact, I've spent a good half of my life trying not to be. So I finally okay. let go to it and. And once I let go to it, I found the way to make it mine and enjoy it. And the writing and things like that are, are a big part of it. I found that if you do something superficially, especially something like building, where you have to deal with clients and you know and subcontractors and schedules and and things going wrong all the time and warranty claims and all of that, man, it can be overwhelming and exhausting. And you want to find a way out of it. I found the way to keep it um, alive for me and interesting is to get deeper and deeper into it uh, every year. This year, for example, 2008. Well, last year, 2018 was what I called my year of codes, where I I got some gigs helping some manufacturers with code consulting on on uh, some products. And and I realized sitting around with these code experts that were you know citing codes and sections and such as if they were preachers citing scripture, and I felt totally out of my depth. Well, I decided I didn't like that feeling at all. I like to be expert in whatever I do. And so I began to study the codes and culminated my year on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, getting my building inspection certification. I had no intention to go out and inspect buildings for a community, but I wanted the knowledge, you know. And so kind of done that throughout my life, found the way to get deeper and deeper into, into the building business so that I knew it better and found it more interesting to keep it Interesting for me, <laughs> more than anything, you know. So I, I didn't start wanting to be a builder. I, I wanted to be anything but a builder. I would never dreamed I would be, but we were poor. I'm an immigrant. I was born in Argentina. My mom brought me uh, to the United States. We moved to New York. That's where immigrants used to go. Now they go to Florida and California, but it used to be New York. And we, um, you know, my mom was a PhD. So I got a heck of a good education, but we had no money. We lived in uh, little studio apartments and uh, grew up in the rougher parts of town uh, and, you know, didn't really have a lot of money for vacations and things like that. And so I would spend my summers working. And I typically found work doing something like cleaning up after a painter or or I worked part of a summer with a, um, a plaster who would do like, you know, mostly patches, but also plaster work on churches and things like that. And I, and I fell in love with the physical feeling of applying, you know, real hard plaster. I'm not talking about drywall to the wall and there's just a terrific kinetic experience, just a physical experience of, of smoothing plaster and and I enjoyed it. With that little bit of skill that I, I got, I wanted to travel and I found a great way to travel was to volunteer uh, doing something somewhere and so I began to find opportunities to volunteer. Had I been a young person today, maybe I would have gone to you know, Habitat for Humanity or something like that to take my skills and and volunteer and be in some exotic destination for summer. Uh, But I ended up volunteering, you know, building churches. I helped build a Tibetan monastery for some refugees and things like that. Always looking for the travel experience, never for the building experience. I just was getting it by default. I found myself in my 20s, um, finally obtaining my career goal, which was to go to art school. And I was at California Institute of the Arts, CalArts, in Los Angeles studying fine arts. And I had these building skills. So, as a work study, I worked in the uh, theater shop, and I began to do uh, sets, you know theater sets uh, with disney and in you know in Hollywood. Getting uh, side jobs with uh, my instructors that needed, you know, some shelves built and finally some remodels. And by the time I graduated, I had uh, a totally useless degree in art and a very useful skill in construction. And I began to, you know, take jobs with contractors, uh, building decks and additions and all kinds of things and still trying to uh, make my way as a performer and an artist. But, you know, I'd make 30 bucks in a day playing in an orchestra, or I'd make $150 a day on somebody's construction crew. As the kids came and the house and everything else, the construction took over, and I was very depressed. (laughs) It was like a sign of my failure. You know, here I was, a a builder. And uh, that lasted inside myself, and yet I had very good opportunities. I I ended up um, having a partner that was kind of a financial partner, and we began to make small developments. Because I was, uh, you know, didn't have that much money. This he was—he was an investor, and he was also an Argentine. He was, you know, he wasn't a billionaire; he was a millionaire. And so we bought land in, in marginal areas in Los Angeles and developed there. I quickly caught on to something that my father, who who was an anthropologist, would have been very proud of, and that's that the folks I built for had very different architectural sensibilities and tastes than the type of construction that was going on in the tract housing nearby. So there was some, you know, giant developers out in Los Angeles, you know, KB Homes, American Homes, and all kinds of, you know, 5,000 house subdivisions. And they built, you know, these typical houses with like the kitchen attached to the living room and open spaces and a lot of carpeting. And the folks we were building for were mostly Mexican immigrants. And uh, they would buy a house like that and remodel it. They'd remodel it to make it their own, and they would remodel it for doing things like putting up walls in the kitchen (laughs) because they didn't want an open kitchen to the living room. It wasn't attractive for them. So I would see that, that they'd move into a house, one of the houses that maybe we built, and then they'd start remodeling it. And I got the idea, man, I know what they want because it was the same thing like my mom wanted. When we moved to New York, we had this apartment where the kitchen was open to the living room. And my mom, not knowing that this was the, you know, the latest style, thought our developer, our landlord, was so cheap that he didn't even build a wall separating the kitchen from the living room. So we put up a screen, one of those Japanese screens, to separate the kitchen from the living room. So I remembered all that, you know, because I had lived it, and I realized that, hey, I know a lot about building at this level and for these folks. So we began to uh, build the kind of houses they wanted to buy. And we were very successful with that. We were very successful all the way till we got to this enormous recession that came in, I think 89, 90 in Los Angeles. It was similar to the one we just lived through in 2008, but it was local to uh, California. And by twists of fate and many, many uh, long stories, I ended up finding a, again, another financial uh, investor in Nebraska of all places who wanted me to come out to Nebraska and help him uh, build some subdivisions. And I did. My wife at the time, in tears, that we were moving to Nebraska. I looked up Nebraska on the map because I wasn't quite clear where it was or what it was. And uh, anyway, ended up in Nebraska in about 1990. That's a bigger cultural divide than geographic, I think. Oh, it was a big cultural divide. (laughs) I was born in Buenos Aires, you know, a city of about 20 million. I had lived in New York. And then I was in Los Angeles, and here I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, city of, at the time, maybe 150 to 200,000. You know, that's a sizable city, but for me, it, I'd never lived in such a small town. It was frightening. You know, I, I noticed that people were, they'd walk in the restaurant and immediately start saying hello to everyone in the restaurant. You know, everybody knew each other. I'd never been in a place like that. If I knew you, the chances of meeting you among the millions of people that I encountered in the you know, during the course of my day was would be, you know, like winning the lottery. Yep. And so the anonymity that I grew up with, it was very different than this Lincoln, Nebraska. And it was very uniform in terms of culturally, there wasn't a large Hispanic population. It was all white. And I had never built for white people. I had never worked with white people. I was, I lived in a world where you didn't need to speak English. And suddenly there I was in the heartland. Uh, so yes, it was a little bit intimidating. It was a culture shock. And uh, but I adapted quickly. I began to find, well, what is my model uh, to do what I did in Los Angeles, which is the reason they wanted me to come because i had been successful there. You know, how do I reproduce what I did there here? Because what I did there was I built housing specifically for Mexican immigrants. And I knew exactly what Mexican immigrants wanted. And I built houses for them. And they liked my houses because they didn't have to remodel them. You know, and the whole families would buy down the block. I remember we had the Magana block. The Magana family came. They would come in a little car, but the aunts and the uncles and the grandmother and the kids and there'd be like 15 people and looking in the house. Uh, but that Magana family and their humble little car could pay cash for the house. Then we would have another couple come out with their Volvo and stuff and they were super in debt and couldn't, couldn't buy anything. So our model worked. There in Lincoln, Nebraska, that was a different story. And one of the reasons that our model worked was because our houses also were very low cost. And they were low cost in Los Angeles because I was able to work the labor portion of it. I could get very inexpensive subcontractors, very inexpensive labor. And then I did some other things, you know, to reduce some prices of materials and all, but it was mostly negotiating. In Lincoln, Nebraska, I ran into the fact that there wasn't such a big labor pool and everybody was really expensive you know, you wanted a plumber and you'd call like three plumbers, one of them would answer and he wasn't available for six months and he wasn't going to cut you a deal. So I didn't know how to reproduce the model of making a niche product inexpensive for a specific group of people. And I struggled with it. I built some expensive houses for a little bit and I've never done well with that. I'm doing that right now, actually, but I've never succeeded with expensive houses. I've only succeeded with the low end. And uh, I began to do that and, you know, trying to learn, you know, what do white people like and what, how do you build here and what subs can I engage? Finally, I found a model and I found the model in um, Michigan. I found the model in Michigan. It was a great model for me. This is what happened in Michigan. In Michigan, uh, there was uh, a building boom and houses were getting more and more expensive and the community was uh, having a problem because they couldn't, get housing at the price that most of the people in the community could afford. This is in Battle Creek. And so one day, the Board of Realtors put out a challenge in the newspaper challenging the Home Builders Association to build a house that folks could afford. The target price was $90,000. And at first, the builders thought, that's crazy. We can't build a house for 90 grand. Until they huddled together because they had gotten this public challenge from the home builders and said, well, you know, we've got to respond. We've got to come up with it. And so a committee of builders got together to figure out, well, how do you build a $90,000 house? And uh, they gathered with their subcontractors and they began to debate and talk, et cetera. And each one had ideas like, well, maybe we do this and maybe we do that. And they you know, began to work backwards from the budget. To get the house. Most people, you know, they start with their dream house and they hope it'll cost them X amount. And then it costs 10 times that amount. And, you know, they have a frustrating experience trying to get the house because they don't begin with their price, with their target. These guys began with their target and they worked backwards and they were actually able to uh, get a house that they could, in fact, build and sell for $90,000 with a small profit. They built it. Then came the, um, you know, the parade of homes. This is when the home builders organize, like all these builders put their best products in and there's a parade of homes and people go around like open houses. But they go from one builder's house to another to see, uh, you know, what the latest and greatest is in the in the community as far as real estate. So the builders had the um, parade of homes and the newspaper came out and they said, well, that year they had the most expensive house that had ever been built in the community. It was like one point two million dollars. And they said, you can come and see this $1.2 million home on the top of the hill and such and such with fabulous views, incredible appliances and granite and all this stuff. Or you could go down to such and such as corner and see the $90,000 house that the home builders put up. Well, it turns out that on um, Parade of Homes Day, there was like a line around the block to see the $90,000 house. It's what tripped the interest of the entire community. Everyone wanted to see this house. Of course, it was sold immediately. So one of those builders, one of that group of builders, in fact, he was the guy that was sort of the organizer, thought, wow, that was pretty cool. If I could build $90,000 houses, I could sell them all day long. So he began to work, refine it a little bit more, and, and he went into business building these houses. So I went to see him. I read about this. and I thought this is fantastic. I went to see him. He was really nice. I sat down, had lunch with the guy, and one thing I noticed was that his eyes were totally peaceful. He said, you know, since I've been doing this, I will build ten ninety dollars $90,000 houses making about eight to $10,000 a piece, and I don't stress or anything, and, and it's easier for me than building two or three of the more expensive ones. So I took his plans, and I took them back, and I worked with my draftsman, and I got all of my subcontractors together and reproduced his method, which was – instead of telling them here, what's your best price? I said, this is how much money I got for the plumbing. What can you do? How can we make this work? And I convinced my subs, I had a steak lunch, uh, took them out to the steakhouse, invited everybody for steak and had all the subs there. So let's figure out how we can do this house. And I wanted to do it in Lincoln, Nebraska for 70,000 so that we can build a lot of them every year and have this kind of bread and butter income. And they, not all of them, some of them kind of didn't like that and went away. Others joined in, but gradually I had a team and we put together our house that eventually sold for 70 grand. And again, began to be successful with this, began to sell them and build them and sell them. And I did subdivisions of 30 houses, 24 houses, things like that. And on average, I made five to 10 grand on a house. Nothing fantastic, but I'd already been through the experience of a recession and didn't go bankrupt. That was in Los Angeles. And I didn't want to go through that kind of experience. And so I I thought that it was better just to do this bread and butter. I built the same house. There was very few selections on it. And then an opportunity came on nine 11 from nine 11. When the twin towers went down, all of the uh, airlines were shut down and I had started writing for fine home building, but that's a very high end magazine. They do this beautiful houses and stuff. And, um, I had started writing for them, but always about other people's work and you know special things, uh, nothing of mine. But this uh, editor that uh, worked with me at Fine Home Building was uh, stuck in Los Angeles. Uh, there was no airplanes, and so he rented a car, and he was going to drive across country back out to Connecticut, where he lived and where the Fine Holding magazine is published. So in his drive back from Connecticut, he called different authors along the route so that he could spend the night or a couple of days with each one and get to know him and, you know, uh, make something of his long uh, drive home. And I was one of those authors because I was on right on a I-80, you know, that goes from Northern California anyway, to uh, up to New York, to the East Coast. And he stayed with me a couple of days and uh, he wanted to know, what do you do? And I said, well, you're not interested in what I do. Well, maybe, I don't know. Let's go look at it. So I said, okay, let's go look at some of my places. I, I said, it's not fine home building material. And I began to show him these houses that I built and sold for 70, 90,000, sometimes 100 or 110. Never built a house over 120, 25. And he looked at it and he thought, well, how do you do this? Because, you know, all of our stuff is like half a million and up. Remember, this is quite a number of years ago. Now it would be 2 million and up. But... Um, he looked at my stuff. He was amazed that I could get the pricing that I had. And we talked, and I, I explained to him my system because I had, a, by then, a, a pretty good system for doing it. That wasn't just the blueprints. I said, You know, some guys steal my blueprints and think that with those blueprints, they can reproduce what I do. And they can't because not all of it's in the blueprint. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is in the organization and the purchasing and the negotiation with the subcontractors and in many details that. You know, weren't incorporated into the blueprints, but were handed out as 8.5 by 11 sheets with specifications. And the kind of details were I had every single stud in the house counted and exactly where it belonged because I knew that the electrician needed a stud in a certain location. So he always found it there. And it could give me a better price because he had to put in a little bit of a markup with other builders in order to do some framing. The electrician had to do framing because the, the layout's weren't right for where he needed to put his, you know, his electrical boxes, for example. So I took that fudge factor out by, you know, designing a house exactly to the needs of each one of the subcontractors. And I worked together with the subcontractors to figure out what that was and how to make it happen. And, you know, what what inconveniences does the roofer have that make it more expensive to hire him and what? how can I solve those problems so that he can give me a better price. So there were many, many things, not just in the blueprints, but also in the logistics and also in the method, you know, and in, in the um, management of the projects that allowed me to achieve the price point. And he was interested. He thought this was good information for the readers. And he had me uh, pen an article about building an affordable house. So I said, OK, I'll, I'll do it. He had some trouble selling it to his team of, of editors, but they published the article. And the article turned out to be the second most popular article they had ever published. The gold medal winner was the first article that got Sarah Susanka going with the not-so-big house. And mine with the affordable house was the second most popular. They got the most number of letters and comments and, you know, and, and I was answering questions and such. This had their book department call me and say, hey – we'd like you to do a book based on this article you did. And I thought, my God, what a great opportunity. I've always wanted to write a book. And yet, who wants a book about the houses I build in Lincoln, Nebraska? That's, that's a lot of book for on one builder's topic. So I took a different approach. I toured the entire country, all the major markets over the period of a year, and interviewed the most competitive builder in every market and then Took all that information and distilled it into building an affordable house, which was my first book. But that year-long research gave me two things. It made me realize how interesting the building business was if you approached it like an anthropologist. You know, if you approach it like an artist, if you approached it in an intellectual way. And it made me really an expert on affordability. I began to consult for Habitat for Humanity and things like that. It kind of opened up a new... Uh, career for me, which was in, in article writing and presentations and things like that, that I found interesting and compelling. And so since then, I have sort of continued that line of trying to explore more and more deeply, you know, the building business. And it included things like what you alluded to. I spent five years building in South America, Mexico, Ecuador, I spent a lot of time on uh, on doing things like, um, you know, the uh, hurricane and floods and, and all that. I'm always responding. I'm always out there with FEMA and such and uh, just trying to learn everything I can to keep it interesting and to be able to do good work.
0: That's and that's quite the journey. And, and you said something that, well, you said a lot of things that, that stuck out and I want to go back and visit. One thing, though, that uh, when you first started talking, you, you mentioned that like this last year, you used um, a real in-depth study of the code to bridge your knowledge gap on that and, and that uh, it's a tough business and your approach has been to equip yourself with knowledge and education to confront that and uh, that particularly resonates with me and, and I want to make the point to our listeners as well that I've had several motivations for uh, doing the same thing in my business. This podcast is is one of them. It's to try to advance our knowledge in the in the industry, but also for me personally, and it, it's I think a fantastic uh, strategy and tactic. It's been very rewarding for me to to take the all the risk and, and headaches that you have in the in this business and attack it with rather than avoiding it. Attacking it with additional education and with head on trying to fortify your knowledge because when you do it, all of a sudden a lot of those problems seem to kind of break up and break away they don't necessarily go away entirely but that's been probably one of the more empowering rewarding things that i have ever done was was take that approach and i guess i'd never heard anybody put it into words before you just before you did a second ago
1: yeah i had a um a friend uh, you know I was talking to him about the I, I was proud when i got my when i got my certification as a building inspector i was, I was proud of it so i i sent it off to a few folks uh, by email And one of them wrote back, well, to me, the building code is minimum and, you know, people should strive to do better than the building code and blah, blah, blah. And the building code is all by consensus anyway. So it's it's always behind the latest science. And and I had to laugh because what I realized, first of all, I did not know the building code and I had been in the business like 40 years. (laughs) And I realized that most of my colleagues in the business do not know the building code. Folks that say things like that, it's just the minimum, it's nothing, et cetera, really don't know all that goes into it, into developing those codes. I realized when I took that exam and I learned the code, my God, I, this should have been like the first thing that I learned. This should be the minimum requirement. I shouldn't have been allowed to paint a wall <laughs> before I knew this stuff. I couldn't believe I'd spend my life you know, without an in-depth knowledge of this. And I got to, um, first of all not only studying the code and getting to the, the the code is much more arcane than it needs to be. You get the code book. One of the things you struggle with is figuring out where the heck the code addresses a particular issue. It's hard to find, you know, there's chapters and there's sort of, it's sort of organized, but you know, you go to chapter seven, that then refers you back to chapter three. And then you've got to go to a table that's in chapter four. And, and it's, you know, getting, to know your way around it is like getting to know your way around London. You know, London doesn't have like numbered streets or, or alphabetical streets. It's just names of streets all over the place. So, unless you were born there and have a map of the place and, you know, just memorized, you're totally lost. Code's a little bit like that. The organization is not intuitive. In fact, they sell an index. You can buy separately an index to the code to try and find things. So, it's a little bit more arcane than it needs to be. I think it's not organized well, but learning the code, you know things like, you know there's rafter tables in the codes and things like that, right? But do you really know how to use them? I mean, could you really figure out, could you, the code is supposed to be prescriptive. You know, the residential code is prescriptive. It tells you how to do it. You really don't need an architect or an engineer because you can go to the code and it'll tell you how you're supposed to do it if you know how to read it, and most builders don't. And most builders, and I'm not talking about necessarily a tradesman, because maybe a tradesman knows basically their own section of the code. But you as a general contractor, as a builder, need to know enough about all of it that you can walk on site and immediately know whether your your mason is adequately, uh, you know, putting a, a wall ties to his, for his bricks. You know, are they at the right, uh, you know, so many square feet, et cetera. You need to be able to see those things immediately. And that's how you avoid problems, incidentally, by, by being able to uh, – you know, get in there and, and uh, correct these things as you go, rather than after the job is done and the homeowner is calling you, telling you that the bricks are falling off the house. So, if you want to avoid warranty claims, it's really good to know the code because you can, you know, you can be a little bit more precise in your quality control. Then I found it fascinating because as an affordable home builder, uh, the other thing was codes are minimums. Codes are bare minimums. You should exceed when a builder tells me that. All I know is that he's probably adding extra insulation because that's, you know, when builders build above code, what they usually mean is that they're doing a little bit better job in terms of the energy efficiency of the house, typically. They don't mean that they're doing a better job structurally or that they're, you know, they typically mean that. And that's a portion of the code, but it's a limited portion of the code. There's a lot more to it than just simply the, you know, the energy efficiency. And the minimums, you know, the minimums, like, the minimums sometimes are very valuable because why would you want to go over the minimums if the minimum is adequate structurally? When I began building my affordable houses, one of the things I took advantage of was research that wasn't done in the 1970s. 1970s was a time when, uh, you know, interest rates went through the roof. home buyers could not buy homes because the, the down payments and the payments were just too high. And so builders began to research how to build homes that they could sell for less because they were more affordably built well one of the things that they discovered was 24 inch on center framing it used to be called ove optimal value engineered framing right now it's called advanced framing which is a better you know better branding for it but what was optimal value engineered framing the 24 inch on center it was framing designed to be less expensive because you used Fewer studs. You use less material. You also used you use thinner roofing uh, membranes. You know sheathing on the roof. You use sometimes two by three studs on interior walls, etc. There was a whole system developed. In fact, HUD was very much involved in this, so that you could build a house for less money. Years later, I remember in the year in the early nineteen nineties, I was a, an expert witness on a on some kind of a construction. Defect litigation. I was an expert witness. And the opposing attorney looked at me seriously and stared at me in the eye and said, Mr. Pages, do you consider yourself a green builder? And I looked back. I was horrified. I'd never been accused of such a thing. <laughs> I wasn't really sure what he meant. But, you know, I paused a little bit and I said, I, I don't know, maybe. I didn't know it then. But my book, which for affordability, promoted things like 24 inch on center framing had become a very popular book in the green building movement why what does a green builder want to do the green builder wants to use material sparing techniques why would you use 30 studs when you could use 25 five studs five studs by every house built in the you know in, in the nation or how many thousands of trees and why would you you know so the idea was being excessive wasn't necessarily a virtue in fact sometimes doing the minimum was more. It was better. So, 24 inch on center studs. You had more insulation. You had fewer uh, thermal breaks because you know the, the studs are not particularly good insulation. So, the more studs you have, the more thermal breaks you have. Now they're putting sheathing, foam sheathing on the outside to help with that. But so many things I found in the code, you know, were were good not only because they allowed me to do things less expensively, but also because they were material sparing techniques and that had sound engineering behind them. When I was doing the 24-inch on center studs, people were accusing me of abusing the code, abusing. This is not using the code. This is abusing the code. You're, you, know, you should be at 16. Then I got with a historical uh, engineer, a guy that knew the history of our wood construction uh, story, how why we build the way we do. And I asked him, well, where did the 16 on center come from? And I found out. It used to be that they would cut wood lath with a hatchet, with a hand axe, you know, with a hatchet, they would slice the wood lath off approximately 32 inch, you know, log. So they had a log about 32 inches high, because that was about the distance a guy with a hatchet with one good blow could carve on a, a you know, a thin piece of wood uh, slat. And he would be carving the wood slats off from this 32 inch log. And if they put the wood slats up and nailed them only at both ends, then it would, you know, the wood slat would, uh, you know, would bounce. And the, when they tried to apply plaster and Like for plaster and lath, this is back in England. They tried to apply plaster, it would bounce and the plaster would come flying off. And so they put an additional stud in between to stiffen the wood lath. Our 16 on center was just kind of the most efficient way of reinforcing wood lath. It had nothing to do with structure whatsoever. So that's why we built 16 on center. That's why we memorize, you know, 16, 32, 40, learn to count by 16, which is crazy. And um, there's no structural reason for it whatsoever. So these are things lost in the, in the uh, mists of time that we do as if a choreography on the job site and don't even know why we're doing it. And so I found it very valuable to read the codes and say, oh, you don't have to do that. You can do this. It saves you time. It saves you money. It saves building materials. You know, you can use, for example, um, fiberglass insulation as a fire block. You know, in the stairways, where and, and up around uh, soffits and such, where you need to put a a draft stop, or you need to put fire block along the stairways, you can use fiberglass insulation to do that. You know how much easier it is to staple fiberglass insulation than the, to be cutting blocks and everything and fitting them in and nailing them up in place.
0: Why wouldn't you want to know that? You were already a expert, though. On on, I mean, you probably had parsed out all or almost all of the waste that one can for. The products you were already building. So, what what were some of the top takeaways you got from this code research that you were able to take back and start implementing in your builds?
1: I don't implement them in my builds right now, but uh, two by three studs, interior walls, twenty four inch on center. You know, everybody puts on five eighths drywall. Five eighths. You have to have five eighths drywall. Why do you have to have five eighths drywall? Ceilings, three eighths inch drywall. That I do. (laughs) Nobody's. Nobody knows. And they're just as good. There's no real difference you can perceive between 5-8 and half inch drywall. And nowadays, you know, most of the studs, it's not like in the old days where they were just actually milled studs and they would warp and all, and and maybe you wanted something to kind of stiffen it up so you wouldn't see the – it wouldn't telegraph through the wall that one of your studs was a banana. But today, we use all finger joint studs and pretty straight lumber, and uh, I don't see any any point in it. Well, some of these things, joist spacing and such, you know, for floors and all, if you can, you switch the 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 material you're using, and you can use wider joist spacing, you know, all kinds of things like that that I, I didn't even know were still applicable that you could do. I, I don't know any builder that builds with two by threes, but you can, and it's a lot less expensive. Now, why don't I do that? I don't do that in part because you start doing that, and some competitor begins to spread the word that you've got the cheapest house, and and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and 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 it's a little bit harmful. And I've, you know, if you're really clear on your objective to build the least expensive house that you possibly can, then that works. Where I am right now, living in, in Vail, Colorado, it, it wouldn't go over well. Otherwise, I would do it. It's in the code. There's no reason not to. They've got it figured out. Structurally, it works. It's sound practice.
0: Yeah. Well, and I understand Vail's a different market, but you have to, with all your experience in that space, I'm sure you found some things that carry over to a little bit more of the higher end building. And I, and I personally, I know a lot of our listeners would be interested in what you found on, the, on a little more of the custom side that is a common culprit of waste. Well, you know, a lot of this information,
1: and uh, I, I wrote a, a second book, which is about affordable remodeling. And uh, when I wrote the book on affordable remodeling, I tried to reproduce the same you know, pattern to go around to all the different markets and talk to the best remodelers. I couldn't find the cheapest remodelers. There was no, I had no way of finding them affordable housing. You could find just by, just by looking at the price of the houses for sale, you know, you're going to identify who the affordable builders are, but in remodeling, it was a little bit tougher. So I just went to the, you know, to the most uh, successful remodelers in in each market and asked them how they save their clients money. And guess what? None of them could give me any tips or information because I was asking the wrong question. The question was, how do you save yourself money when you're building your own house or remodeling your own house? And there all the all the techniques started to come out. But the major technique that I found is this. First of all, you do have to try to, you know, strip the structure of any excess. Because I've never had a customer ask me, well, how thick are your footings? Never. You know, if my footings will will pass inspection and the geologist thinks they're good, I have no reason to add an inch to them. That what the buyers are looking for is on the finishes. So it's in the cladding, it's in the finishes that you have to, um, you know, pay attention. What I learned, I learned in terms of saving money on the finishes. For and this applies to the higher end market. I learned uh, building uh, movie sets. Basically, I learned that you can, you know, you use appearances to achieve something that has a higher end finish look than what it cost. So, for example, let's say you have a hearth. And you're doing a fireplace surround. You can put one row, of very expensive Italian tile, and then the rest of it could be like a a slate or something relatively inexpensive that, you know, matches or or complements the color. If you're doing, um, let's say, crown molding up high on a room, you could install a very complex and difficult crown molding, huge crown molding, very impressive, or you could install two strips of panel mold, one on the wall and one on the ceiling in parallel. Those two strips of panel mold, one on the wall, one on the ceiling, running in parallel all around the room, you then paint from one strip of panel mold on the wall all the way up onto the ceiling, terminating on the other strip of panel mold that you've traced the room on on the ceiling, and you paint that whole area, drywall <laughs> and the little pieces of the molding, the same color as your trim. Let's say you're using a, a nice um, enamel white Or gray, which is in style now. You paint that that color. When you walk in the room, what is the buyer seeing? They see a crown molding. What did you actually install? Just two pieces of panel mold. You didn't spend the money on the molding and you didn't spend all the time and trouble on mitering the ends, etc. So you can do a lot of things to create the illusion of a higher cost item than it actually is. I have done that a lot. For example, using uh, plastic laminates, but not just using standard plastic laminates, especially ones that imitate uh, stone or you know or wood or something like that. I use the um, uh, the plastic laminates that imitate steel, uh, that imitate like rusted steel and and you know. Patterns uh, like that. And they look very, very high end with a very nice border on them. And people come in and they compliment. They love the countertop. They don't realize that they're looking at a $60 piece of plastic laminate versus a $1,200 piece of granite. So I've always said, you know, if you have a, a necklace and the necklace has one diamond, it's a diamond necklace. You don't need to, you know, stud the whole thing out. Now I've seen that it's common, but one of the things that I I got into was taking a freezer and a refrigerator, making the doors open in opposite direction. You know, one a right hand door, one a left hand door, and then I would mold the freezer and the, the the freezer and the refrigerator together, and it looks like a gigantic. It looks like a sub zero. You build it in, and it and it just says humongous. Look enormous refrigerator freezer. But you've got two three hundred dollar boxes, <laughs> freezer and refrigerator. Maybe it's a I don't know a whirlpool or something like that, and you mold them together and it looks, you know, if they've got stainless steel, they look fantastic. So there's a lot of things like that that you can do that create the illusion of a more expensive uh, product than, you know, it actually is. And that's the kind of thing that I still do routinely in my houses, you know, just selecting that one featured light fixture versus all of them throughout the house. And, and that's how I've been able to save money just by creating the illusion of, uh, you know, of expense. And and there's a lot of little tricks to it that you can do. And, and, you know, I've detailed them in the, in the affordable remodeling book that incidentally was a complete flop. There is no category for affordable remodeling. So although there's a great ideas in there and all, and as a publishing venture, it was a disaster. <laughs> it, didn't, uh, it didn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sell much. You can still get one. You can get one for like a dollar 50 now on Amazon.
0: You know, the, the irony to all that is that, uh, everybody who comes in wanting to build a home, buy a home or remodel theirs, they almost universally people have a larger wish list than budget to accomplish it. So everything that you're talking about is, you know, you, even for the higher end custom guys and this is one thing I want to make sure that we get across in this in this interview is that there's stuff to be learned for even the guys on the high end because no matter where your client is, there's always a budget and so finding ways to cut that waste is, is going to help everybody, no matter what type of builder you are. I want to talk about one other thing that you mentioned earlier. You said that when you were building these houses, I think this was in, in Nebraska, you were saying that uh, a lot of guys were trying to figure out, they'd steal your blueprints trying to figure out how to get the cost down to where you were, and they couldn't because a lot of your savings weren't in the blueprints. And that's interesting to me because a lot of times when we're trying to look for savings, we are looking at the blueprints. Is there anything that you can share with us on what you mean by that? A few examples of savings you found that weren't in the blueprints?
1: Well, the savings that aren't in the blueprints are, um, you know, organizational things on how you do your your jobs and, and what you focus on and what you don't in terms of, of saving money and not. Let me give you one example. I kept a separate job that I called warranty. And this job began the year with a zero budget and uh, zero expense to it. Every time I had a warranty called and had to repair something, I would apply those expenses not to the original project. So in other words, once the project was closed, it was done. I made whatever money I made on it. That's it. There was this other job, this like horrible job that I had that would only lose money. (laughs) I could never bill anybody for it. And it was the warranty job. And that warranty job at the beginning of the year had zero cost, zero budget. And it had all the trades, everything, you know, from framing to windows to carpet. It had all the trades. It just had zero amounts on all of them. And every time I had a warranty claim, I would apply the costs of that warranty claim to that job. But I wouldn't apply it necessarily by trade in the sense, you know, that I wouldn't apply carpets to carpets and windows to windows, but by cause. So let's say I had a warranty claim. What was the warranty claim? Well, the warranty claim was that a pipe froze. I know you don't. Well, maybe you occasionally have that problem in, in Austin, but pipe froze. It burst, man, drywall damage. Uh, you know, you have to repair the pipe. The carpets were soaked. You have to replace the carpets, paint the room, huge mess. Had to buy a new dining room table because the legs were destroyed by the water. Now, what caused that that pipe break, that caused this tremendous amount of uh, of damage it was insulation it was poorly insulated the insulation was messed up on it and so the insulation allowed or maybe the weather uh, barrier wasn't good and it allowed wind to get in and somehow to freeze that pipe and then the pipe broke and caused. so all of that expense it didn't go under carpet and drywall no it went under one trade insulation that's where it went and then maybe another time there was another um problem and it was a water usually they're water and that's the, always the problem is water so there was another it was water but this time it was through a window and so that went all to window at the end of each year not necessarily strictly at the end this is i'm speaking a little bit metaphorically and, you know i would look at this all the time it would cause me great anxiety i'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this particular job warranty but periodically and certainly at year's end i would look at that to see well where what was my major expense because these expenses, they were not in the blueprints of the jobs I'd done. You know, these were in how we built and who we hired and how good our quality control was. So, all of these expenses, I realized one year that two items caused me the majority of my warranty claims windows and insulation. So, what did I do? I stopped buying cheap windows. I went and found not the most expensive window in the world, but a very decent window with a very good warranty that a roughneck framer could install because I would I would put these windows in and they would leak. And then they would tell me, well, no, because, you know, this was not exactly square. And, this, and I said, if a framer can't install it, then it's not. it doesn't work for me because my framers are installing the windows. I don't have surgeons coming and putting these windows in. So they can't be that delicate that if you, you know, tweak it a little bit, the water comes in. So I got these robust windows. I got window training for my my framers, and I completely revised the way I did insulation. I no longer pieced it out. I no longer had guys there working by the piece, trying to do as quick a job as possible. I trained two of my guys. I sent them to. We went to seminars. Brought them out to home builders. Uh, you know the IBS, the International Builders Show, to have to take classes and stuff on sealing and caulking and and, all. and we began to do our own sealing jobs. And then I hired a very good insulation contractor with very good warranty and stopped having a lot of these problems. So this was something that was methodical and it allowed me to have a small margin because I had not so many warranty claims. I reduced them and reduced them and reduced them year after year. So one of the things was that kind of focus in terms of uh, your operation. And also, and this not everybody can do, is repetition. I built the same houses again and again. So I had a limited set of plans, maybe four, and I built those four. I became expert. It's like, you know, a little restaurant that makes a terrific hamburger and some fries. You know, they don't have everything in the, you know, they don't make Chinese food and everything else. They make a limited menu and they do it well and they have a good clientele for it. So that was a little bit my approach is focus, and then taking a very good look at what costs money. I found, for example, we spent a lot of time doing Eve. You know, the framing would go very, very quickly. And then we spent an incredible amount of time doing the, the soffits, you know, the, the the soffits and all of that. And often had problems there. You know, the siding would blow off on the top, something would happen to the fascia, et cetera. And it was difficult to get to. I found a way of having those prefabricated and we would just install them versus build them. We'd build a lot of stuff on the ground, or I would have the wall panel shop, floor panel. I was lucky enough to have an operation like this in in Omaha, which was near me, and I could have them actually pre-built. And then we would put them up with our forklift and install them on the job and saved an enormous amount of time. You know, we're talking about high-end. I'm looking at – I should have brought this up earlier in our conversation, but I have here in my hand right now, I'm looking at it, in my two hands, a set of plans – I won't name the, the folks, but this is a couple that have bought a lot to build their dream house. They have had this house designed three times. They got a, their house, the dream house designed, and they thought they were going to be on budget. The architect told them it was on budget. They went out and bid it. It was like um, $300,000 over their budget. Uh, so they had the house redesigned again. They went out and bid it, and this time it was $400,000 over the budget. They did it again. Uh, they brought me the plans, and I'm looking through them now and a lot of what I do is look through the engineering where we are, you know, this frost. So I use shallow frost protected foundations nowadays because of, um, labor shortages and such. I use a lot of times the ICF block, which has come to, uh, you know, has improved a lot. If you read my book, I dis the ICF blocks. I say, don't use them. They're a great product, but they're too expensive. Well, nowadays. I'm using them <laughs> because with the labor shortages, et cetera, they're a little bit, uh, if you've got the right sub, that knows how. And the improvements in the blocks themselves, they're they're more, you know, they hold together better. They hold their shape. And so using a lot of items like that in the structural portions of it, in the foundation part of it, I'm using uh, modular units. You know, I built in a fabrication plant in, in Nebraska. In Nebraska, in the fabrication plant, they're paying 17 bucks an hour to their laborers come out here to where I'm at in Vail and you're going to pay a minimum of $60 an hour for your labor. Big difference. Again, I never used modulars because I could always build for less on site. But nowadays I use modulars a lot and work a lot with the modular company in terms of of design and and minimizing costs where we don't need to spend the money and maximizing them where it makes a lot of impact.
0: Speaking of modular, what are you seeing as the opportunity for technology in terms of enhancing affordable construction? What things are are coming out or what things are you excited about? Well, the thing I'm
1: most excited about as far as affordability, in part because it takes me back to my roots, is a project I'm doing with um, an architect by the name of Andres Duany. Andres Duany is a Cuban architect out of Miami, and he was a society architect doing like these expensive condominiums and homes and things like that. But eventually he, he had kind of this this idea that he was really attractive to him and he and found a developer that was willing to, to try it out. And this was the concept of designing a neighborhood on the pedestrian scale. By that, I mean, you know, old neighborhoods were designed uh, with people walking in mind. So the blocks were short. They often had, you know, cut throughs like little easements kind of where, where a person could cut through the middle of the block. They had corner stores. It was Designed in such a way that a family could get along without a car. And so he had the idea that this might be something that's attractive because people are constantly vacationing in those neighborhoods. You know, they live in a suburban area. They drive to work. They drive their kids to school. They drive to play dates. They drive to the gym. They drive here and there. And then. When they go on vacation, they go like to this little town in Europe where they can walk around or they go to lots of little towns in in the U.S. where, you know, I don't know, um, Savannah, where you can stay in the hotel and walk to the restaurants and the sites and the museums and it's beautiful and the architectures. So he thought, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we try that and see if it works? And he built this town called Seaside. Seaside uh, became a, a super success. And it's the town, by the way, that the Truman Show was filmed. And the Truman Show was a, a show about this, like, fake town where this guy doesn't know that he, that everybody else is an actor but him. It's kind of like a nightmare scenario. But Truman is, you know, was born and raised, and everybody watches his life. But the town, the ideal town, this perfect town, is Seaside that this guy designed. And from this town and other architects that were suddenly interested in this kind of retro neighborhood design came what's been called the new urbanist movement. The new urbanist movement is, you know, why you have popping up all over the place, these traditional neighborhoods now that look like old neighborhoods, but they're brand new. So he set all that in motion, but they're all very expensive. You know, they're all very high end neighborhoods. And now, like in the 70s, uh, Andres suddenly thought, you know, I really want to hack the whole thing of affordable housing that's become more and more difficult so he began to study affordable housing and one of the models he went to was the hud house you know the trailer house the modular home but i'm not talking about the high-end beautiful modular i'm talking about manufactured housing the kind that's in trailer parks and nobody wants in their neighborhood and he began to look at those designs and then you know to try and see well why are they so ugly and can they be improved so he visited many manufacturing you know modular uh, manufactured housing uh uh, producers and and talk with them and you know went through the factories and one of the ways i got involved with him is he was interested in vinyl siding which is the typical siding that's in these uh units it's often used as a kind of an ugly cladding but i happen to be an expert in it because i you know did a lot of affordable housing and did some award-winning i mean architectural award-winning developments using vinyl siding so the vinyl siding industry likes me and uh use me as a consultant and I hooked them up with uh, with Andres, and we began to work on you know the exterior of, of these units and how they would look and, and what we could use to make them affordable and yet you know have some pizzazz. And through this, I introduced him to my book, and he read it and he got excited. And we began to kind of brainstorm and work together, uh, me on the technical end and him on the design end. And he has come up with some spectacular manufactured housing that you would like to live in. And I'm very excited about it because he's getting interest now. You know where? Google. Places like that that have a real problem with workforce housing. and need to house all their employees and employees can't afford housing. Uh, so in California and very high-end areas where they're struggling with affordable housing, they're bringing him in to help solve the problem through the construction of a manufacturing plant to create these Designs that he's he's made up and and be able to put together these little villages of affordable but extremely attractive designer homes, you know, like the Target model. You know, Target everybody hates Walmart but they love Target, Target because Target yeah. has these designer stuff. You know, they have some mm-hmm. some famous designer design their cheap stuff and it looks great. And so it's a little bit the idea you get this high end famous architect and um, wow. does these beautiful homes and yet. They're designed like my houses based on affordability, and a budget. That's the value. That's the thing you're trying to achieve. And then you make them as beautiful as you can. And, you know, I've looked at these houses and I find myself dreaming about living in in them. (laughs) And, you know, you're talking about $30,000, $40,000 houses. So that for me is super exciting because I'm able to use my sort of technical skill in terms of the construction aspect to put it towards something that really has some architectural value too. My houses that I used to build, although I, I managed to do some really nice looking stuff, it was certainly ordinary by comparison.
0: Now, th- this—I believe you said his name is Andres—is uh, what they're doing. Is this something that's replicable for oh, yes. other builders? Okay. Well, I'll be sure to link to that then in our our show notes because I'm interested in just learning more about that. And I'm sure other people are as well. I, I could sit here and talk to you, <laughs> talk your ear off, but I don't. Uh, I don't want to do that I I do have to ask you while I have you on the on the line though what uh you know I've got a few projects in Latin America myself so I'm particularly interested in in what you're doing down there can you share a little bit about your projects down there
1: sure I'd love to well I've had um, a few projects
0: the major project
1: I'm involved in right now is in a little fishing village in Ecuador the fishing village is called Ayangue it's on the sort of central south portion of ecuador not too far from guayaquil about an hour and a half from guayaquil guayaquil is one of the major cities and uh, this property is a peninsula that sticks out into the ocean so you have you know ocean on three sides of the peninsula and we have 30 lots something like that and what i wanted to do you know a lot of the people that go and develop in these kinds of seaside properties uh, develop very high-end Almost resort like complexes, you know, with towers and, you know, and, and pools. And, you know, and it looks like you're at a, in a five star resort at a Hyatt or something like that. And well, first of all, didn't have the means uh, for that and didn't really like the idea because I, I go on that property and it's a jungle before you bring your tractors and stuff in there and mow it down and start grading. It's a jungle, complete jungle. In fact, if you let it go through one rainy season and you're not controlling the growth of the plants, it's so fertile that it becomes a jungle again. We have uh, posts, uh, fence posts along the property line. The fence posts sprout, and so you have to be careful what trees you use. We used uh, plum trees, you know, plum logs to create our fence posts. And now we have plum trees <laughs> sprouting with with wire between them. It's very fertile ground and it's very beautiful. And they have this traditional housing, which is like these housing up on stilts. And you know the, the houses are made out of bamboo, but they're not bamboo sticks so much as they're slats that are put together. It's like a screen. The houses have no infiltration. The breeze runs right through them and there's no insulation or any of that. And and you're using, uh, you know, these materials straight off the land. And I got really interested in, in that, you know, well, how do these folks build? And and I went to interview people and I asked them, well, why do you have your house on stilts when there's like no danger of flooding here at all? And I discovered that the raised house, although in some areas, like in rice paddies, you know, these houses are up on top of the rice paddies and the workers that work the rice paddies live on top of it. The rice paddies are a swamp. So they live up on this house on the rice paddy and they have these special tires on their tractors that can roll along on the swamp. And, you know, they, they live up there and it makes sense that they're on stilts, but then they reproduce that house somewhere else. And they also put it up on stilts. And I, I wondered why, well, because for them, that's like a basement. <laughs> it's extra free square footage. <laughs> you know, you raise the house up and now you got a place to put your hammocks and store your old bicycles or motorcycles and the chickens can run around and all that. And, and, uh, it's just kind of this nice space. And then the houses are very, very Pleasant inside because the breeze runs through them. What do you want in a hot, humid climate? What you want is shade and breeze and wind. And so these houses are designed to allow the wind to go through. And they provide shade, of course, because they've got a roof on them. And the roofs are thatched. So I love this. And and I began looking at it. And I hired some local craftsmen and a local architect, a young guy. And I said, I, I don't want to build exactly that because I'm not going to be able to get anybody to come from the United States and buy one as cheap as it is. You know, it has to have like the normal bathroom and a kitchen and all the latest appliances and the nice, uh, you know, electrical system and air conditioning even. But I want it to look like, and I wanted to, you know, really get that, that feel of the jungle hut. And so began to work with uh, local architects and built a beautiful model. It's my favorite thing I ever built. It's small. It's a tiny house. And the idea for it was we had this giant cistern in the middle of our property that looked ugly. This square of concrete looked terrible, but we needed the cistern to get water distribution to the other lots. And the cistern looked terrible. I measured that it was five meters by five meters, and I began thinking about the tiny house concept. Why don't I build a house on top of the cistern and just make it into a cottage that I can use while we're building. And then later on, it can be a community amenity, like something that could be rented out or whatever. And I began to reproduce the look and feel of these traditional homes with a modern bathroom and, you know, all the amenities. You'd be very comfortable in it. But it has this beautiful, beautiful look. It has a thatched roof. And I got to get fully involved in each aspect of the construction. So when we went to, you know, to get our our roof, our straw, thatch for the roof, I went into the jungle with the guys uh, to load the donkeys with the material that come down and, and then they're, you know, and they go through this whole process uh, so they could be made uh, insect proof and, you know, they're long lasting. Um, it's made out of the same uh, material that the Panama hats are made out of. It's that kind of straw that the Panama hats are made out of. We cut the balusters for our porch and for our stairways and stuff from these shrubs that were growing on the property. And the guys piece together like it's almost like a a spider's web of these little branches and stuff that they put together and they glue. And it became just a beautiful experience of really, really getting to know the people, the land. you know, I've never known lumber like I do now because I've been out there with a guide that shows me, you know, he cuts with his machete a little piece of the bark of the tree and gives it to me to taste and to feel and know what that tree is used for. And I realized I felt like a short order cooker. i have been like making hamburgers all my life and never met a cow. (laughs) I never knew anything about the animal that brought this meat to my table. And so this, I felt the same way. I was always dealt with two by fours and two by sixes and two by tens. And, you know, this was the first time I really saw trees (laughs) and, you know, and cut them down to use on our property. We framed the cottage with mahogany, if you can believe it or not, because they told me the best wood to use, insect resistant to the last forever, et cetera, we framed it with mahogany. And I used, I brought some framing anchors from here, like, you know, the A35s, the framing stuff, cause I wanted them to, I mean, it's an earthquake country. And I wanted a little bit of use, a, a little bit of the, of the gringo structural strategy. We ran out of the A35s and they said, well, you, you need, we need like another 150 of these. And I said, well, I'm not going back to the U.S. for like another three months, you know, I can't, there's no Home Depot here to go buy them and they said no problem and they brought him to a local uh, i guess tinsmith or something and he made him <laughs> i have a picture of the ecuadorian a35s and the ones uh, from simpson from home depot and we framed this thing all out of mahogany it was so beautiful i didn't want to cover it <laughs> i just thought well this is fine we'll just stain the framing yeah. then we you know we used all the different and i got to see the lumber you know they they cut the lumber each farm each family that has a, a jungle area where they farm and they live and all that gets to harvest a certain number of trees per year. So, I don't know, five trees, whatever it is that they can cut down. So they cut down those five trees and they kind of bring them to a place by the river, on the river bank. So when the river swells, when the river rises, those logs float down to the mill and the logs are marked. And if you look on the logs, there's also this chiseled area where they tie, you know, like a rope and then the mule or the donkey Pulls the log down to the river. You know, I got to see all of this, and it gives you a totally different feeling when you've been involved with the farmer that cut the tree, and you know, and how it went to the mill, and you know the guys in the mill, and then, you know, it was it's up now in your house. You have this extremely intimate uh, relationship with that house, and it was a beautiful experience. And so we're we've been developing this uh, site, and uh, you know, the grading it and putting the retention planting and carving it up into lots and such. And there's this one little beautiful house that kind of sets the tone for the neighborhood. And then the neighborhood, you know, the people are mostly foreigners or very sophisticated uh, local folk that have that sensibility to something that's ecological and that respects the building traditions of that area, and reflects them. Of course, we have nice windows and great appliances and the whole bit. It's not a jungle hut in reality. However, it has the spirit of one.
0: I think you referenced it's kind of the equivalent of farm to market for construction, which rang a bell with me, which made a lot of sense. And I think that uh, uh, what you described is it's like a construction at its essence. which Sounds kind of fun. Now you probably have several of our listeners, me included, wanting to go Build homes in the rainforest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can send you some pictures and stuff if you have a uh,
0: you know yeah. website
1: you link this to so people can see it. You know because describing it and seeing it are two different things. It's very pretty
0: and you'll enjoy it. But you have projects in South America where? The, well, so this is more of a uh, entrepreneurial venture. This is this is a not for profit. This isn't so much a construction venture, although it will turn into one eventually. This project is in uh, it's in Medellin. we basically we teach. Uh, oh yeah. We teach okay. entrepreneurship to low-income youth down there, which is uh, another passion of mine. But but we're eventually have having the plans to do a school down there, which is why I was wanting to pick your brains on kind of some of the, the construction and your experience down there. There's so many differences to the way we build here from some other countries, especially in Latin America. When I've traveled down there, what's the contracting climate down there? Is you know all kinds of challenges in the U.S. that we can all relate to, but I mean, I'm sure there, there are different ones down there. Yeah. Is it easier? Uh, this is probably too simplified, but is it easier or harder down there?
1: It's easier and harder. Yeah. It's both. It has, there's it, okay. it, it, it different problems. Um, first of all, the, the construction industry is not sophisticated at all. It's very rustic. Construction work is not something that people of any kind of education do. It's people, you know, typically uneducated to the point of being uh, illiterate. So it's rough, not in the sense of being um, criminal or mean or anything like that. I don't mean that rough, but rough in the terms, in the sense of very unsophisticated. So you have craftsmen, you know, I would often warn people when they wanted to build their house uh, that uh, I was going to recommend some very good contractors to them, but that their expectations of quality and perfection, you know, had to be really attenuated because they were going to be frustrated. Uh, so you know, you you do lose a little bit of your your perfectionism building down there because uh, the things are a little bit less uh, perfect. (laughs) But um, it's also very nice because it really is, like you said, you know, the the farm-to-table, the forest-to-frame aspect of it. You really get to learn how folks resolve problems and such without using products but using ingenuity. And in that sense, you learn a lot. You know, you watch the fishermen, and all they have is a string and, and a hook, and the hook is made out of a paper clip, and yet they catch tuna. <laughs> it's that same kind of thing. You see these structures go up, and sometimes you know they're ten stories high. And how's the concrete getting up there in a bucket with yeah. a pulley? <laughs> yeah. And and how's it being mixed? Well, you know, in one of those little donuts, like you know, you put the sand, and then you put the cement, and you you knead the sand into it, and you go to and so these very simple construction methods, and yet, and they have some gorgeous buildings and and beautiful finishes. The tile work is spectacular. It looks so rough, the building. You go, oh, my God, that looks terrible. And then you drive by a month later and it's finished and it looks gorgeous because the tile work is something they do exceptionally well. You know, they they really know how to work with masonry and stone and things like that. So what we have here in carpentry skills, they have in working with concrete, with stone, with things like that, 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 that are the typical materials throughout most of the world, actually. You know, very few countries actually build primarily with wood. The challenges um, have been a little bit the lack of sophistication. So you don't have in the in the mechanical plumbing and electrical trades. I mean, my electrician was was bending conduit by heating it up with burning newspaper. and and you know th- there was no consistency in the colors of the wiring because you know, if you go to the to the supply house and um, they only have green wire or they only have blue wire today, that's all that's all they got so you can't like run you know you color coded uh, you don't know if black beans hot or neutral or what it means because it it's not color coordinated so they put like a special notch each electrician has his code for you know notching or twisting or doing something to the wire so you can keep track of it but that kind of thing drives you nuts you know they they may make the house and they have no ventilation for the for the plumbing system I built one house like that, and I'm looking at it and looking at the top of them. I said, there's no vents coming out of this house. No wonder it stinks, because if you left it a week there, it would smell terrible. Well, because all the sewer gases were coming into the house. So I, I brought back the uh, you know, the air admittance valves, the, what do they call it, studer vents, uh, air admittance valves from the U.S., and I had them retrofit into the house everywhere. You know, little things like that, that especially on uh, the electrical, the mechanical, and the uh, the plumbing you'll see some horrible stuff, you know, no pee traps, et cetera. But, you know, people live there and they don't mind. Oh, it yeah. smells a little bit. We open a window. Oh, the roof leaks. That's not a problem. We just yeah. put a bucket there during the rainy season. You know, if you come with the hysterical, I'll sue you mentality here and you want a perfect house, man, you go crazy. But, uh, you know, then it's easy in one respect, there's very little underway of inspections and things like that. You know, not such a big building a safety bureaucracy. On the other hand, if you're doing a development, a subdivision, man, you can run into a lot of problems just because everybody wants to create a problem for you that they will solve for a couple thousand bucks. (laughs) And so that, you know, as unusual as that is here, it's commonplace in in Latin America. It's endemic and and it's, you know, it's really aggravating. It's really aggravating. And you realize that that is one of the reasons some of the countries don't progress much more than they do. Because they have talented people, great natural resources, spectacular scenery. And why is it so messed up? Well, it's the culture of there's no business ethic or very little business ethic compared to what there is here. So in that sense, uh, you have different problems. And you'll run into it certainly in Medellin. I love Medellin, by the way. It's I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in Latin America and, and the cleanest and best organized.
0: Yeah, well, and, and for us, which ties into what we're looking for, it's just uh, wildly innovative. You know, it went from one of the most dangerous cities in the world, the most dangerous city in the world back in the Escobar days to now. It was uh, WHO or UN or one of those organizations ranked it as one of the most innovative cities in the world in the last few years, some of the – stuff they've done to fight poverty there. Um, yes. But yeah, I'm, w- I'm with you. It's a beautiful city and uh, and great people, which is why we're wanting to go and, and do our part down there. If you go to the neighborhoods where Escobar was, the very poor neighborhoods, they have
1: built the, um, the gondolas, you know, the public transportation. Like here we have them to go up to the ski slopes, but they have public transportation in a gondola. You know, you take yeah. the gondola up, you're sitting with about 8, 12 people in this gondola, you know, going somewhere. And it goes over these Poor neighborhoods where Escobar was, and the folks, knowing that there are people looking down at their houses from on top, have like decked out and painted and decorated <laughs> yeah. their roofs and their patios, and also you look down and there's like this, uh, you know, this this show off. of uh, It's fun, you know. It's they're like you said, it's a very innovative population.
0: Yeah, well, and that's part of uh, where we're going is right there where the metro cable goes. Those are some of the poorest parts of Medellin, like you've, yes. you referenced. So we. We are going into some of those areas. We've got some good partnerships. But yeah, they've done the, the Metro Cable. They the, uh, uh, they're did building libraries up in some of these really, really bad areas and, and now have evidence-backed uh, data saying that that's making a major impact in those areas and changing literacy rates and all that kind of stuff. So they've got some really cool initiatives that they've done there. I think that it's fascinating the, talking about this because there, there are things to take away and, and learn from the climate in Latin America and building down there. It does seem like uh, it's almost more of an artisan type. You said they're such amazing craftsmen with, with tile and with masonry. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it seems like uh, they're more generalist. I don't know if that's your experience down there. You know, oh, yeah. But, you know, you, you don't just go get a carpenter and then a sheet rocker and then your insulation contractor. It's almost like I would imagine you've kind of got your, your crew that does most everything other than the specialty trades, other than the electrical and plumbing. Is that how you have it set up down there?
1: Yes, except that the only specialty trade is electrical because everybody else, can, everybody, your taxi driver going to the airport can <laughs> can do open heart
0: surgery and uh, <laughs> and build your foundation. How do you manage it? Is your architect your, well, your superintendent? Uh, well, I was uh, first of all I was there for five years straight,
1: and okay. so I have a an office and I have um, superintendent on site that I've known now for a long time, and I have a secretary and I have a realtor and I have, you know, so I have a crew that I know well and I interact with daily by emails and WhatsApp, the messaging uh, application that everybody in the world uses except here in the United States, WhatsApp. WhatsApp is so much better yeah. than messaging, by the way. Oh, <laughs> oh, it is. It's a spectacular application that nobody uses here. But anyway, so we communicate all the time. And then I'm there like every four to six weeks. I'm there for about 10 days. Okay. So on the 27th, I leave. I go to Ecuador. And I'm going in February to Costa Rica because I publish stories about uh, my work down there. I've ended up starting to get this clientele of people from the U.S. that have some project that's gone awry in, in South America, and they want help putting it back together or getting it sold. So I'm becoming a consultant for distressed uh, North Americans oh. with <laughs> with projects in South America. You can be eaten alive down there. So
0: I was eaten alive too, and I yeah. know the language oh, at all. Uh, it's just <laughs> it just yeah, it it happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you have, by the way, a uh, website like uh, or a website in English for for this community that you're doing down there? Are you marketing it to expats? Yes, yeah, I do. I have a, I have a website where you can kind of see the land and the plans and stuff like that. Sure. What is that website? I want to I want to get it on the audio and then also get it in the show notes. Uh, sure, I'll send it to you. It's
1: Hamptonlands
0: plural. Okay. You know, Hamptonland, yep. but Hamptonlands.com. Great. And and on that note, your website is BuildingAffordable.com. Yes, I have okay. website, a website, buildingaffordable.com. And I have money. a Facebook yeah. under my
1: name, uh, Fernando. I think it's also Building Affordable, the, the Facebook page. Okay. And on the Facebook page, I put articles and stuff
0: like that. Okay, great. And your your books are available on Amazon. Are they also available through your website,
1: um, no, uh, they were, and you'll see a, a link and all that, but go to Amazon. you why, why would you buy it for me for twenty six dollars when you can buy it on Amazon for like uh, for three dollars or two dollars or whatever it is going for now.
0: Yeah. So there One was a time. Purchase.
1: There was a time when I sold them on my website signed. but you know yeah if I sign
0: your book, then it loses its um, garage sale value. so oh. you are better oh, off. yeah Amazon you, I, I buy everything you, off you, Amazon now, so it's like, do you, uh, you
1: know why you know why authors go into stores and sign the books? Because that? the stores buy the books, but then they're able to return the excess—the ones that didn't sell after a period of time. But if you, as an author, go into you know Barnes and Noble and say, "Oh, I'm a, an author, and you've got my books on the shelf, and would you like them signed?" You know, they put a little sticker signed by author. You sign all five, ten books; they can never return them.
0: Ah, so you graffiti your own, your own. Yes. Work. So
1: I. <laughs> so if you see a signed copy of my book somewhere, you know why.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's an insider secret. All right, Fernando. Well. This has been just an incredibly informative, illustrative interview. I'm particularly interested in all these topics and can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me. Sure. I
1: enjoyed it, too. There are topics that are fun to talk about.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. We'll have to have to have you on again.
1: And we'll have
0: to meet in Medellin. That's right. you have plans to go down there? I would love to go down there. I don't have any plans to go down there, but if I have an
1: excuse, I'll make the plans.
0: We'll have to hire you as our building consultant when we start our school down there. Because you're right, I will get eaten alive. Even though I know the language pretty well, they see a guy, a, a six foot three North American guy, and they see dollar signs in their eyes. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is a, which is a mistake. They should know better. But yes, they should know
1: better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, okay, Fernando, thank you so much. Have a uh, have a great weekend. You too.